Hunting Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 152. You know, when we got back to New Orleans, I thought that developing this series of episodes on the Garrison investigation and Clay Shaw trial would be so much easier, at least easier than, say, doing the episodes on Cuba, a subject I knew less about initially than other topics affecting the JFK assassination story. I thought that because so much of what we were going to be talking about related to the assassination is so well known by almost everybody who has some level of connection with the popular story, and namely because the Garrison investigation is the basis for the JFK movie by Oliver Stone, well, I just thought it wouldn't be that hard to dive right in. At the outset of this new miniseries, I found myself reading and writing and reading some more and pulling on one thread or another, learning more about topics I thought I already knew a lot about. And as I began the synthesis of ideas that are required to put together a solid series of episodes, the early attempts were turning out to be just a jumble of ideas that I quickly realized were too large to leave to the normal, unstructured wanders that I like to do when I'm rumbling through an area. Thank you, Jim Garrison. Just like you to leave such a ball of twine to play with. One of the reasons that I think this series is more complicated than meets the eye is this. You see, I am especially sensitive to the question of whether Jim Garrison was a hero or a hack. And I am sensitive because Garrison has always been a polarizing figure. By wading into the Garrison investigation, I have, by definition, opened myself to whatever criticism will come once everyone listens to these episodes. And undoubtedly, some will, silent or otherwise, take a stand. Take a stand on where I seem to stand on Garrison. But that is not really my worry. Despite my additional sensitivities about getting things right under that premise, I have always said to you, as listeners, you are and should be the jurors. Listen yourself. Carefully weigh the evidence just as all of us have tried to do at every turn in this podcast. Arguably, that is more complicated on matters related to Garrison. It's not only about weighing the evidence related to the Kennedy case, but it's also about trying to wade through all the misinformation and criticisms heaped upon Garrison by his critics, and to figure out which ones are truly accurate and truly deserved, and which ones are just bunk. I'm fairly sure that whole exercise is beyond my capacity. So I am, right off the bat, going to declare that I'm not going to try and do that. I am, however, going to try to do what I always do when preparing materials for this podcast. I try to read and understand viewpoints from widely varying sources, weighing myself whether they have plausibility, veracity, whether they should be included but first, always trying to stick to the facts as much as we can, as best we can ascertain them. And at least as far as testimony is concerned, 
as closely gathered to the point in time of the crime as is possible. It's harder on this one. There were definite forces trying to tear up Garrison, the man, and Garrison's investigation. And let's face it, Garrison had a pittance of resources to figure this one out, at least when you compare his investigative capabilities to what the FBI and the Warren Commission had at their disposal, and the rest of the federal government agencies involved, including the Secret Service, the Postal Inspector, and the IRS, and the ONI, etc., etc., etc. The list goes on and on. Oh, and not to mention the Dallas Police Department and the Dallas Sheriff's Office, along with the state of Texas, all combined, what they all had available to them. It's easy to see how Garrison might have resorted to a lot of supposition based on a teaspoon of evidence. That is what every executive in the country does when he or she is faced with the necessity of coming to conclusions and making decisions based on very limited information. It happens daily in the real world. And our largest, most complex organizations crave men and women who can, using limited information, make highly insightful decisions that turn out to be right. Granted, we are talking about justice in the framework of jurisprudence here, and not a decision to make a capital expenditure or expand a plant or buy a company. But still, there are parallels here. Garrison fancied himself as a man who did not need to be shot in the face before he raised his pistol and aimed it. Unfortunately, that concept did result in some ready-fire-aim moments for him. But the pattern was clear. He saw himself as a highly trained eye, a man who could spot the nefarious from a thousand yards. It is the kind of thing that can get a man in his position in trouble. In trouble simply dealing with any member of John Q. Public. In this case, it was the criminal case of the century in our country and the latitude he was afforded cut both ways. Surely anyone courageous enough to go after anything, or anyone dark or nefarious enough to do this, would have to play some hardball. Anyone can understand that. On the other hand, in the end, anything done in a case like this better be able to withstand extreme scrutiny in the light of day, because there is no doubt that history is going to review every every decision you make, literally everything you do. And Garrison was the recipient of that, like it or not. In preparing for this series of episodes, as I said, I read and reread many, many books, and I drew from all of them. First, starting with Garrison's own books, and primarily his book entitled On the Trail of the Assassins, his own account of the investigation. But I read and reread other books, too, James Kirkwood's American Grotesque, and Patricia Lambert's False Witness. These two books are largely perceived as being very critical of Garrison's actions, and some folks would go as far as to say that, at least in Kirkwood's case, that he was supported by the CIA. But who knows? And regardless, all of these books, named and unnamed, all of them have their weaknesses and blind spots. Yet, all contain important details that are helpful when trying to tell the story in a more comprehensive way about Jim Garrison and the investigation. And so thank goodness for modern researchers like James D. Eugenio, who are incredibly trained eyes, so to speak, 
experts who spot some of those weaknesses and have done so on many occasions as they relate to certain important points. A great example are some that D. Eugenio has pointed out related to work produced by Patricia Lambert in False Witness. All so helpful to me as I read their critiques and materials as well, helping to balance the public record regarding it all. And of course, as always, there are important official documents galore to draw from. The grand jury testimony, which of course occurred before the trial, it's among the most fruitful and interesting set of documents. And now it's widely available. And of course, so many FBI documents and other government documents, so many of them emanating from around the time of the assassination itself. Still, there are some documents that will never find their way into the discourse. And to that end, we wonder what might have been found in Guy Bannister's files. You may or may not know that they were swept up by government authorities within hours of his passing in 1964. Very deliberately, I am assuming. Else, why would the government have been there within hours of his passing? And what miraculously was left behind was a series of index cards left right there in his office. Cards that served as the table of contents for all those missing files, only to be plucked a short time later by Louisiana State Police in rapid succession as they arrived at Bannister's office, behind the rest of the federal cleanup crews. Apparently, the troopers working for the state of Louisiana didn't see much evidentiary value in those index cards once they seized them, and for the next several years, they used the blank backs of those same 3x5 index cards to write inter-office notes to one another on. Garrison's team, thanks to the cooperation of Bannister's widow, would catch up to what was left of those cards in 1967, as Garrison's own investigation began to heat up. And the few cards that were left would provide insight and clues into what might have been found in those files, had they been plucked by Garrison's team before they were snatched by others, and undoubtedly destroyed, or at least sequestered. There are other gems, too that we wonder about. And of course, the $64,000 question related to missing files is, where are the rest of the garrison files? Where did they go? Yes, there were missing garrison files, missing after the trial was over and garrison was forced out of office. Files that ostensibly contain some of the really juicy stuff that might have told the story in a more convincing way. We know those records are gone, But what exactly did they entail, and what exactly would they have proven? And why did Garrison and his team not introduce them at trial? Yes, much of the men and much of the records of this tale are gone now, likely lost for the rest of history. But there is enough that remains that is still preserved for us to tell a great story, and that we will. But wait a minute. Hot off the press. Regarding the garrison documents, there actually is more to that story. Let me wander for a minute and tell it now. Recently, I came across an article on the American Free Press website. It was written by an author named Donald Jeffries. Jeffries stated that John Barber, who is an Emmy Award-winning journalist and show business veteran, recently announced his intention to release long-suppressed files from the investigation conducted by New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison. Okay, 
let me explain why Barber has the ability to do just that. You see, Barber was granted the only interview that Jim Garrison gave after losing the Clay Shaw trial, and Barber then produced two documentaries, the first entitled The Garrison Tapes, and the more recent documentary entitled The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. How he came into possession of this is an interesting story. When Harry Connick took over as district attorney in New Orleans in the early 1970s after defeating Jim Garrison in an election, Connick ordered a police officer to destroy all of Garrison's files. That officer felt the records were historically important, and so he had them copied. These records would, of course, go underground for a while, but finally they would emerge. And folks, you can't write this stuff. You see, Gino Maneri, who was owner and proprietor of Houdini's Magic Shop in Las Vegas, found the garrison files for sale one day on eBay, and he bought them. And then, after viewing Barber's new film on the media and the JFK assassination, he was so moved that he sent Barber $500. He then followed that up by giving Barber the massive treasure trove of garrison files, 67 boxes in all. As Jeffries tells the story, Barber was drawn in by the very first file he read once he received those boxes. It was a document containing David Ferry's admission that he was affiliated with the CIA. Barber actually mentioned another one of these files in his film, which dealt with a 1967 CIA memorandum to its legal staff instructing them to render all possible aid to Clay Shaw, the man Garrison was prosecuting. Barber told Jeffries that he felt a historical responsibility to release such important information to the public. Jim Garrison chose me, quite by accident, to give his only interview in all the years following the Shaw trial, Barber said. I was honored to be his Boswell and to tell his whole story to the American people. Barber said he was pleasantly surprised by all the attention he garnered from a recent appearance on the popular SGT Report podcast, inspiring him to share the files. Garrison had explained to Barber that while the Warren Commission files were sealed for 50 years following the release of the long-discredited Warren Report, his own files weren't scheduled for release until 20 years after that. Barber plans a gradual release of the files, beginning with all the information Garrison compiled on Shaw. So, maybe there is hope that the truth, the real truth, will ultimately emerge. I've been reading and rereading this history of the Garrison investigation and the Clay Shaw trial for some 30 years or so now. And as I begin that same exercise once again, one more time, now applying the craft to developing this series of episodes, I still don't know the answer to the question I posed earlier. Was Garrison a hero? What I do know is that I've always believed that Garrison was a complex figure that was bound to find controversy in the arenas of life that he found himself in, whatever they might be. Nevertheless, he deserves his place in the history of the JFK assassination story. With all that in mind, I humbly present the rest of this series, and I hope you will enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. And hopefully you are stimulated now by 
what you hear stimulated to view Garrison through a more informed lens and in the context of the wider history of our country. Only then can you make up your own mind whether Jim Garrison was a hero or not. Now, without further ado, let's listen to episode 152 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Jim Garrison was the district attorney of New Orleans. The date was November 22, 1963, and the time was just a few minutes past 12.30 that afternoon. Garrison was working away, and he was sitting at his desk when Frank Klein, who was a member of his staff, busted into his office and yelled out clearly that the president had been shot. A wave of shock and disbelief came over Garrison, and his first thought was to be hopeful. Perhaps the president had just been wounded and that he would survive. It wouldn't be long before Frank Klein and Jim Garrison would head over to a nearby restaurant on Royal Street. It was Toto Rich's, and it was in the French Quarter. And they went there because it was a quiet, uncrowded place and because it had television in the dining room. They ordered food, but under the circumstances, nobody was really eating. It was a ball of emotions for everybody in the restaurant that day. And then, when the disclosures about who did it were blurted out on the television and they named Oswald, there was a burst of anger. And then, almost in unity, they could feel a sudden burst of fury in the restaurant, a fury of hate against this previously unknown young man. It would get worse because it would not be long before people more widely realized that this man was from New Orleans. This cut deep. And just about the same time that this was all happening at Toto Rich's, well, about 12 blocks away from where Garrison was sitting at the time, there was an incident that occurred that would launch the Garrison investigation, the investigation related to the president's assassination. It happened right there on Canal Street, and it involved a man named Guy Bannister, who was a former special agent in charge of the Chicago office of the FBI, and who had more recently been a deputy superintendent of police in New Orleans, along with another man, Jack Martin. Bannister was a man with a reputation for law and order, and Garrison knew him pretty well. In fact, when Bannister was part of the police department in New Orleans, Garrison would lunch together with him now and then. They would tell each other stories, Bannister chipping in things about the FBI and Garrison about his experiences in New Orleans. Bannister was an immaculate dresser, and he always had a small rosebud in his lapel. Bannister was not really known as a drinker, although occasionally you'd find him downing a martini at the International House. At any rate, he was not a person prone to drinking heavily during the day. For whatever reason, Bannister made his way over to the Cats and Jammer Bar on the 500 block of Camp Street that afternoon, and as the sun was setting over the nearby Mississippi River, Bannister, after downing an inordinately large amount of alcohol, for him anyway, 
would make his way back to his office, and he would go there along with a man he was with, Jack Martin, the man that he had been drinking heavily with all afternoon. Suddenly, after they got back to the office, Bannister engaged in a heated argument with Martin. Martin was a man who was technically a private detective and someone who had been connected to Bannister at his office there at 544 Camp Street. Both of the men had been drinking heavily, and that was nothing new for Martin. He had quite a reputation as a drunk. Once back at the office, Bannister accused Martin of taking documents from his files. Martin couldn't believe it, and he basically blew up. It was not something Martin in his own mind ever would have done, and he couldn't believe that Bannister, a man he had known for over 10 years and worked with for some time, was now accusing him of it. So things began to heat up in a hurry. Martin said something to Bannister that afterward he probably wished he hadn't, something that perhaps later he would like to have retracted. He looked at Bannister at some point after the argument began to get heated, and he told Bannister that he had not forgotten certain unusual things that had been happening at the office during the summer. That was a terrible mistake on Martin's part because at that point, Bannister pulled out his 357 Magnum pistol and he began to pistol whip Martin's head with it. For those of us that have seen a 357 Magnum, we all know the beefiness of this weapon. It's an extraordinarily heavy gun. And what happened, really, in just a split second, is that the scene turned Martin into a bloody, battered mess. And by the time it was done, a police patrol car carted Martin off to Charity Hospital, which was located not far away on Tulane Avenue. The detail of that assault, for those that care to learn more, is forever memorialized in the New Orleans Police Department report number K-12634-63, dated November 22nd, 1963. The beating that Jack Martin took from Guy Bannister that afternoon did not sit well with him, and on the next day, as he sat in the hospital after the incident, he would confide to a friend the thoughts that he had and the suspicions that had caused the eruption in the first place. It was a suspicion that David Ferry, an associate of Guy Bannister's and a frequent person found in Guy Bannister's office, had driven to Dallas on the day of the assassination in order to serve as the getaway pilot for the men involved in the murder of JFK. Oswald's background was soon highlighted in news reports that were heard across the world, and it was clear that he had spent time in New Orleans. By its nature, this created an obligation for Garrison to look into Oswald's activity there. Garrison quickly arranged for a special meeting of about half a dozen members of his staff, and on the Sunday afternoon, just two days after the assassination, they gathered in Garrison's office. This wasn't an unusual thing, as Garrison had assembled his team before on a Sunday for important matters like this. As they began to investigate Oswald's activities quickly, they came across the fact that he had been seen during the summer with a man named David Ferry. They would quickly, as a team, begin to explore this lead to determine if there was anything more and perhaps a relationship of some sort between the two men. Garrison knew who David Ferry was. Garrison himself had actually met David Ferry once. It was shortly after Garrison had been elected as the district attorney. 
sometime in 1962, and he was in the process of walking across to Carondelet Street, near Canal Street, and Ferry, from just about out of nowhere, grabbed Garrison by both arms in an effort to get his attention and to shout congratulations about his recent election win. As they quickly disengaged in order to beat the traffic, Ferry would yell out that he was a private investigator. In fact, David Ferry's name was relatively well known in New Orleans at the time, and Garrison was well aware of his piloting abilities and, of course, his purported involvement in the Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba and other anti-Castro activities, along with his frequent speeches to veterans groups about patriotism and anti-communism. Shortly thereafter, one of Garrison's DAs, Herman Coleman, told his boss, Jim Garrison, that he had uncovered an important fact about David Ferry. Ferry had taken a journey to Texas just 48 hours before and on the very day of the assassination. Coleman wouldn't name the source, but said it was thoroughly reliable, and it happened to be the man that Jack Martin had confided in after he had been pistol-whipped by Guy Bannister. Jack Martin had told this unnamed source of his dark suspicions about Ferry's sudden trip to Texas. Garrison would send Frank Klein immediately over to Ferry's apartment, and inside they found a rather unkept place with lots of military equipment army rifles, ammunition clips, and on the wall, a large map of Cuba. Making the situation even more odd, there were two young men inside the apartment that were waiting for Ferry's return, and they said that Ferry had headed for Texas in his car early Friday afternoon, about one hour after the assassination. Garrison's men would begin to mount an around-the-clock stakeout, waiting for Ferry to return. They were anxiously wanting to question him. Given the timing of his departure, Garrison concluded that it was unlikely that Ferry was the getaway pilot, as Martin had thought. Still, Garrison was not willing to conclude anything without questioning Ferry. Ferry did return to his apartment on Monday morning, November 25th, and he was immediately brought to Garrison's office for questioning. Garrison would describe him as Only Garrison could, saying that he looked like he had been shot by cannon through a Salvation Army clothing store. As Garrison began to question him, he denied that he had ever known Lee Harvey Oswald, but he did admit that he had driven to Houston on Friday. He clearly had a different demeanor sitting in Garrison's office versus what he had showed the day Garrison met him on the street corner. He was ill at ease. When Garrison asked him the reason for going to Houston, he responded that he had driven to Houston to go ice skating. Garrison immediately asked him why he had chosen one of the heaviest thunderstorms in many years as the occasion to go on an ice skating trip. As Garrison said, simply put, he had no adequate reply. Garrison would go on to say that later they had learned that once at the skating rink, Ferry never put on ice skates, but actually had spent all of his time at a payphone, making and receiving calls. And it wasn't just Houston that he went to. They would also learn later in the investigation that Ferry had continued on from Houston to Galveston, Texas, where he happened to be when Jack Ruby called the location in that very same city, the same night, the night before he shot and killed Lee Harvey Oswald. 
These points about Galveston were not things that Garrison knew in the initial discussion, as they were to come out later. Garrison was a skeptic, and so he ordered his investigators to take Ferry to the 1st District Police Station, where he was to be booked and held in jail for questioning by the FBI. Garrison would turn the person of interest over to the feds with a reasonable level of confidence that they would take it from there. Garrison was a man who had confidence in the legal system. After all, he came from a long line of attorneys. He himself had worked for the FBI. His father was an attorney, his grandfather was an attorney, and in fact, his paternal grandfather, Thomas Jefferson Garrison, had been general counsel of the Northwestern Railway, which was headquartered in Chicago. His grandfather had a rather famous character named Clarence Darrow work for him at the railroad before Darrow resigned to take on one of the more famous cases in American jurisprudence. Many wonder where Garrison got his extreme height from, and it ran on his mother's side. His maternal grandfather was seven feet three inches tall, and in those days, that truly was a giant-sized man. The FBI reviewed the circumstances with Ferry and released him without celebration, clearing him almost immediately of any connection or concern as it related to the Kennedy assassination. Jim Garrison and his team had done their job, and they went about their business afterward, allowing the Warren Commission to review the crime of the century. They had done their part, and David Ferry would stay under the radar for more than three more years before fate would get hold of him again in New Orleans by none other than Jim Garrison. But for now, the Kennedy investigation was in the hands of the FBI, and the Warren Commission would soon put their good housekeeping seal of approval on the lone gunman theory and produce 26 volumes of published public documentation to back it up. Thank you for listening to episode 152 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 